It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my webpage at dr-history.com for over 440 true stories of the Old West. Also, now available on Amazon, my first book, a historical fiction based on true events entitled Coal Miner to Cowboy. The story of a young man born in England in 1850. He wants to be a cowboy and makes his way to America, travels from New Orleans to Independence on a steamboat, hires on as a teamster to Santa Fe, then on a cattle drive to Bozeman, Montana. He also rides shotgun on a stagecoach. He travels with a wagon train, and on his two-year journey, he meets some famous people and keeps a journal of his adventures. The book contains a lot of the true stories from my podcast and is now available on Amazon. Visit my webpage for a link to Amazon for the book, Coal Miner to Cowboy. Good morning, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you? A little wet out there, I'll tell you. The, I think it's going to slow down the harvest. Uh, yeah, and it's slowing down a lot of things. Uh, we're supposed to have a dry up starting tomorrow, though. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right. Well, uh, today I'm going to talk about uh, Oregon fever. Oregon fever. And this comes from a book called Brave-Hearted Women of the American West. So That has to be about getting on the Oregon Trail and exactly. going west. Okay. And, uh, talking about the Oregon Trail and Oregon in particular. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even if it was only in their imaginations, a lot of Americans looked to the West. Yeah. I mean, that was the place to go. Can, let me stop you there. Have you ever sat down and really thought about the the thinking, the mindset of people to say maybe they lived in Pennsylvania, maybe they lived in uh, Missouri, wherever it was, all of a sudden packing up and going to the complete unknown? Exactly. And you'll see a little more about exactly what you're talking about as I go along here. Okay. There was a guy that was the first person, to, one of the first, to or- urge settlement of Oregon. He was a Boston school teacher by the name of Kelly. And as early as the 1820s, Kelly had begun to write and publish pamphlets talking and bragging about Oregon's rich potential. The ironic thing is Kelly had never actually been there. Oh. But he wrote these pamphlets about how great it was out in Oregon. I see. <laughs> never having it been there. It wasn't a first person. No. Okay. No, but he could uh, talk it up pretty good. Okay. Now, most people would find Kelly's uh, almost excitement for a place he'd never visited, maybe a little touched, you could say, but he he founded a society called the Oregon Colonization Society, and it had a pretty good membership. And he'd never been he'd there? He'd never been there, no. So from the 1830s, however, a steady stream of information about Oregon country from a variety of other sources began to filter east, and this may be what you're talking about. They'd hear these things, and they think, 
Man, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. So not all of it was fantasy. Uh, first came the stories uh, gleaned from the fur trappers, and then in the latter part of the decade from the early missionaries, not only the Presbyterians, such as the Whitmans and the Spaldings, but also a handful of Methodists and Catholics. But in the early 1840s, more stories would make their way back to the United States, just like this Kelly had done. Uh, these earlier settlers told of this land of milk and honey. The rivers were everywhere. You could navigate them. The timber was abundant, and the tilled land yielded more per acre than you could ever get back east. Uh, spontaneously, uh, things would grow uh, better than they did back in Belgium or, or England. The Columbia River and its tributaries were literally choked with salmon. Now, I do believe that, right? Because, I mean, the, the salmon were... Sure. Millions, yeah. millions of, yeah. of salmon. But uh, there was a lot of excitement about the size of wheat and the abundance of crops. And the soil, as said, was, quote, rich beyond comparison. And, and that is true. I mean, the soil over there, you know, they have good crops over there in, in Oregon. Uh, they said people were healthier. Even the weather was better. Rain rarely falls even in the winter season. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. I've been there in the winter. Uh, I've been there in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it says the dews are sufficiently heavy to compensate for its absence. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he did the, all this well, these are the other stories. These are other stories that started I filtering see. back. I east. see. I see. Um, so garden vegetables grew uh, to huge sizes. Uh, there was a beet spotted in Narcissa Whitman's garden that measured almost three feet in circumference. Oh, my. And a gigantic turnip that, quote, will exceed five feet before pulling time. you got to be kidding so, me. But, but, you know, I've, you know, around here, we when you go to the fair, you see uh, uh, squash and... Um, you know, different vegetables that are huge, but, you know, so maybe they did. Yeah. But not everybody believed everything that was going on. Yeah. Okay. A man from Oregon, uh, he claimed, quote, friends, you are traveling to the Garden of Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. And just let me tell you, the clover grows wild all over Oregon. And when you wade through it, it reaches your chin. Oh, my. Well. This guy should have wrote travel vouchers. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say that out in Oregon, you'll like this, Ed. The pigs are running about under great acorn trees, round, fat, and already cooked, with knives and forks sticking in them so that you can cut off a slice whenever you are hungry. This guy really got away with murder. <laughs> Not only him, but these are all the stories that trickle oh, back. Oh, You know, I, I'm sure a few people didn't quite uh, swallow that one. Yeah. But anyway, in these first few years of the immigration west, you know, we've talked about this. There were no maps, no guides, and almost no information about what it would take or how to get there. Many of these early expeditions would rely on little more than the clues left by a previous wagon train. Sometimes they would actually leave... A paper slips, uh, a paper in the sagebrush or nailed to a tree or a post that would kind of tell people a little bit about what's going on. Really? Yeah. But, you know, the, the measure of unpreparedness that they... They had no idea what they were. They you know, thought they'd just understand. jump in a wagon and, and go. Head west. Oh, you my. Know. 
So no one had a compass. Uh, they just turned their teams west and followed the Platte River. They had no guide, most of them. Most of them came out without a guide? Yeah, a lot of them. They just followed the Oregon Trail, the, you know, and so little information. And they had no idea what to pack. Right. And anyway, they just kind of figured they just smell their way west, you know, just, oh, I, I can't imagine that, my. but you know, and, and you can imagine a lot of them got lost in the wilderness and would never reach Oregon. Really? Uh, a journey that could realistically last six months or more was popularly believed to be only three or four, but that's pushing it. You know, yeah. It's, it's going to take five, six months anyway. And, you know, if some of them left too late in the year, like, the Donner Party, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be in trouble. And others, too, left late and got caught in, in the winter storm. I can't imagine just going on your own. Yeah. And sometimes only five or six wagons, you know. So, you know, a lot of times we picture 15, 20, 30 wagons, but a lot of them were two, three, four, What did five they wagons. think along the trail? There'd be a Mickey D's and a Seven yeah. Eleven and all that? Well, and so many of them didn't take enough provisions. They ran the risk of starving to death. Uh, oxen were usually favored over horses and mules, but along these months along the road, uh, these overloaded wagons, you know, they packed them as tight and full as they could. Yeah. And a lot of times that proved too much for the oxen. That's right. They couldn't make it. That's right. So exhausted and half starved from a lack of good grazing, the animals became simply too weak to pull heavy loads with the result that settlers had no choice but to lose most and sometimes all of their possessions. And when that, their oxen finally gave out, entire wagons together with everything in them was just left beside the trail. They left everything. So there's a gal, 17-year-old Nancy Kelsey, who made the journey in 1841. She described how when her family's last remaining wagon finally had to be abandoned, she was forced to walk barefoot until my feet were blistered, cradling her one-year-old infant in her arms. Oh, my. At first, they had carried their food with them, but soon even their supplies ran out, and she had subsisted for two weeks on nothing more than boiled acorns. Oh, now, I've never eaten a boiled acorn. No, I haven't either, and quite frankly, I'm not anticipating no. sitting uh, down. So, and... But, you know, treasured family heirlooms, however small, were the first to go. Uh, one settler would recall a man named Smith standing with a wooden rolling pin in his hands. And here's what he said, quote, I shall never forget how that big man stood there with tre- tears streaming down his face as he said, do I have to throw this away? It was my mother's. I remember she always used it to roll out her biscuits, and they were awful good biscuits. Just sentimental things. Well, did you ever see the TV series uh, that was put on uh, Paramount, 1883? Yes. That's exactly yeah. what yeah. happened to that German uh, wagon yeah, train. exactly. Exactly. So, you know... The the wagon trains were sometimes compared to uh, that made by uh, a defeated a retreating army with stuff beside the trail. One pioneer found clothes, boots, shoes, hats, lead, iron, tinware, trunks, meat, wheels, axles, oh wagon beds, and even mining tools beside the trail. Did a lot of the trains, the wagon trains, that were led by qualified scouts... Uh, and run by scouting companies, uh, did they pick up, like you just said, a lot of the material and take it with them or leave it right there? Some did. 
because if they found something along the trail that and they had the room for it, yeah, they would they would throw it in their wagon, providing they had the room. Yeah. You know. But a few hundred yards from this is what he says, from my camp I saw an object which reaching proved to be a very handsome and new Gothic bookcase. It was soon dismembered to boil our coffee kettles. So, you know, they'd take these uh heirloom uh, chest of drawers or bookcases, things like that. You know, I but, wonder if a lot of that material is still out there. Oh, I'm sure some of the iron, you know, some of the metal stuff that, that uh, is still there. Wooden stuff probably is long gone. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, anyway, but often the only reason the settlers survived at all was by picking over the stuff of those who had gone before them. Like I say, they sometimes left food. Mm-hmm. So these coming behind would sometimes uh, pick that up oh, if they yeah. were lucky. So Tabitha Brown, a widow in her mid-60s, described how when her party was simply abandoned by what she calls, quote, the rascally fellow who had passed himself off as a guide. You know, sometimes they would pretend to be a guide and then get out, get the money and then abandon. Yeah. 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 But uh, she had lost literally everything she possessed except her horse. After three days without food, she came to a canyon. She says, quote, strewn with dead cattle, broken wagons, beds, clothing and everything. But the provisions of which we were nearly destitute. So, and again, you think about these ladies, these women, <laughs> that sometimes their husband died, before, you know? Yeah. Did so, did a lot of them turn back, reach a point regardless of where it yeah, was and turn back? I think some of them did, you know. But a lot of them relied on hunting buffalo to replenish their supplies of food. But even that was difficult, you know. Think about these huge herds, hundreds of thousands of buffalo uh, along the trail. The, and that could be dangerous. You get in a stampeding herd of buffalo. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, your wagons could be overturned. Uh, lose your your animals with the, the herd. So, but uh, even for those whose oxen and supplies held out, the strange fluctuations in the weather could prove pretty dangerous. In dry years, the heat and dust could be unbearable. The dust, uh, one person says, it will fly so that you can hardly see the horns of your tongue. Can you imagine? Well, you've been in a snowstorm, so have I, that oh, you boy. can't hardly see the front of your car. Yeah, yeah. Well, same thing with these dust storms. You can't hardly see in the front of your oxen. Can you imagine plodding along every day watching nothing more than the oxen take that slow step Daddy. all day long? Yeah, I mean... Plot, like I say, plodding along. Yeah. But oxen were better than horses and mules. Yeah. But they talk about how the dust would just infiltrate everything, their food, their clothes, their bedding. And other times it would be so cold they would have frost as late as May and even even in the middle of July. We've had cold weather in July. Oh, absolutely. You know? I, I've always wondered about their footwear. Barefoot. A lot of them barefoot. I can't imagine. But uh, and I think that were more the maybe the children, uh, you know. But they'd have hail the size of rocks that could totally rip out the canvas wagon uh, on the wagon. Uh, it was said that it could knock out a grown man. I mean, these storms across you know across Wyoming. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Boy. Yeah. They could tear through a camp and destroy everything in a matter of minutes, uh, and the prairie around into a quagmire of mud that sometimes they'd have to hook up two or three sets of oxen to pull through. Some mud, or even up a hill. What about the bandits? Uh, yeah, well, that's the other thing. You know, I mean, you had, of course, Indians, but you also had outlaws that would yeah. come in and, and take everything. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's one story about uh, a, a single wagon that was going along with his family, and a guy at night came in and stole their horses. Well, of course, here's this wagon stuck out in the middle of nowhere. And the guy that stole the horses came back in a couple of days and said, well, I'll get your horses back for you for some money. Well, went and got the horses that he'd stolen and sold them back to the guy that he'd stolen them from. That's an enterprising business. (laughs) Enterprising. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, they talked about tents that were blown down and the covers ripped off. Uh, One survivor wrote, uh, and in less than five minutes, we were wet as drowned rats. Unless you've been through it, you can have no idea of the confusion resulting from a storm on the plains with the oxen bellowing, the children crying, and the men shouting, the thunder rolling like a constant salvo of artillery, with everything as light as day from the lightning flashes, and the next second as black as the depths of the pit. Where did they get the water? A lot of places along the Oregon Trail for the oxen, the horses, and for themselves. Well, that was also a challenge. That's why I don't understand these guys that went without a guide. I mean, why would you, you know, a guide, if you had a legitimate one anyway, could at least know, okay, we've got this far to get from Raft River to the Marsh Creek or this to there, you know. So, but, you know, it's untold that, you know, of course, we know thousands of people died on the trails. Some starved to death. Others, you know, to disease, typhoid, cholera, Mm. mountain sickness, and camp fever, and and other diseases we don't even know about. But probably the most vulnerable were uh, pregnant women. Can you imagine just the difficulties, the no. childbirth on the road. You no. know, I it mm. just, I, that's why I say you talk about tough women, but now they talk about others that simply went crazy. One immigrant was witness to a particularly unsettling scene when a woman in her company simply refused to travel another step. Her husband spent the best part of three hours trying to coax his work, work on, wife on to move, but she would not stir. She just sat there in the trail. Really? So three men went and took each one. They lifted her up, carried her to the wagon, and put her into the wagon uh, with her husband. Really? Yeah. So, again, uh, the, the toughness and the how they did this. Well, you must like, reach a point where there's no hope. Yeah. Exactly. And like I said, there, we don't talk about it much, but there were suicides. Yeah. You know, just like up in the Klondike when the miners were headed into the Klondike, you know, some of them got so bad that they would just take care of themselves. Oh, and that my. was the end of it. Yeah. But anyway, that's kind of the, one of the stories about the, what we call the Oregon fever. And, but, you know, despite that, you know, there were thousands and thousands that made it and did just fine. They got to Oregon territory, uh, up into the Willamette Valley, which, you know, is a, it's a beautiful valley. Yeah, it's got it water. But we're talking about uh, originally they started off from, uh, Missouri. Yeah. Independence. Usually. Independence, Missouri back in about 1841 yeah. to something like that. Yeah. But some of them had started, remember, clear back like in Pennsylvania and on the East Coast. 
and made it to maybe independence. And at independence, I think that's where they would, uh, they could restock their supplies, uh, get new animals, new oxen, whatever they could get. You know, and the money. I mean, they had to save, I would assume, quite a while to get the money to buy the wagons and buy the oxen and the material and everything. Yeah, at one time I had a list of uh, the cost. How much for the flour? How much for the, the oxen, the wagons, the, just the, the harnesses? Uh, yeah. the barrels for the yeah. water, the, uh, the cooking equipment, you know, uh, what so. did it, what did a team of oxen or maybe four, uh, what did they run per head? You know, I wish I could remember that. I, I want to say at least three to $400 oh, per head. That's, my. and I'm just guessing maybe I'm, wow. but I, I'm thinking, I think in, you had to have up $1,200 to have a good team of maybe four. And the wagon wasn't cheap either. No. And there again, you had to have a good wagon. And there were a lot of times when uh, they made the wagon wheels out of green wood. And so as they go along, the wood would shrink. Yeah. And so what they would do a lot of times is they would pull into a stream or a river and just let it sit there for a while and go slowly through it. So the wood would soak up the moisture and expand so the rim wouldn't fall off. Oh, my. So time and time again, they would have to, unless they had, and a lot of them didn't know the difference between green wood or, you know, uh, wood that was uh, good enough for a, for a good wagon wheel. Well, it's just the actual, uh, say, a family of four, two children, mom and dad. Uh, I can't imagine they had no clue what to take or what not to take. Right. And embarking on a 28 to 3,000 mile journey. Yeah. But when they did, if they did get to independence and they there, they could at least stock up on some things because the store owners and the mercantile places, they knew knew, uh, okay, you're going to need this and you're going to need that. I'll bet you there were a lot of shysters there, too. <laughs> there could have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was interesting. we got to do another one on that. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. A little different take on Oregon fever. Absolutely. Now, you're going to be with me next week. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're looking forward to that.